Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, let me begin just like kind of on a, on a, on a quick uh, personal note here. Um, you know, I sent an email out probably six weeks ago talking about my mother-in-law and her being in the hospital. And uh, as you know, she was very sick there for a while. Um, but in the, over the last six weeks, we have watched and benefited from the love of this church like you would not believe. I mean, it really, it has been mind-boggling. Uh, people handing us money. Like, we didn't ask for money. We asked for prayer. And people are literally just going, here, money, 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 money. Here, 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 here. And I'm sure you all got some bills to pay. So here, uh, phone calls, text messages, literally multiple times a day, every single day. I can't walk in this building without getting hit by 10 people. How's your mother-in-law? How's your mother-in-law? How's your mother-in-law? It has just been awesome. So anyway, thank you guys for that. Um, she is improving significantly. Uh, you know, she's off dialysis. Uh, they're going to move her to a rehab facility, I think, tomorrow. And so anyway, long road ahead related to the cancer diagnosis and whatnot. But um, but we're very encouraged by where we are right now. So anyway, thank you guys for your love. Um, as Shane mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Uh it says verses 13 to 28, but as I began, as I kind of completed the preparation late in the week, I realized that was way too ambitious. Okay, so we're going to stop in verse 19. Uh, so we're going to 13 to 19, okay? So let me read Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist... Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. At this point in Matthew's gospel, um, the disciples have watched Jesus heal diseases and pains, stop seizures, dispel demons, end paralysis, teach with astonishing authority, cleanse lepers, calm storms, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, speech to the mute, restore withered hands, feed more than 5,000 people, walk on water, and then feed more than 4,000 people. And so Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? All the miracles I just mentioned had eyewitnesses. Many of them were done right out in the open and public. Um, and so Jesus knew that people were talking, like, a lot. Um, and he knew his disciples were regularly out and about. And so Jesus knew they would have heard the chatter. And so he asks them, you know, hey, what's the word, boys? What are, what are people saying about me? Well, the word on the street was that he was John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod, uh, 
the story was told a couple of chapters earlier here in Matthew. But apparently, for Matthew 14 too, even Herod was under the impression that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. Like, where did you get that idea? But anyway, that's, that's what Herod thought. And uh, apparently that rumor had gained a little traction. Uh, some thought he was Elijah. Uh, you know, the very last lines of the Old Testament say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So some people thought Jesus was Elijah. Um, others thought he was Jeremiah. So there was this Jewish tradition. Uh, it's captured in Second Maccabees, actually. There's this Jewish tradition that, uh, which is not part of our Bibles for a good reason, by the way. Um, uh, there was a Jewish tradition that Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of the incense during the time that, that the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. And there was this kind of idea that perhaps uh, Jeremiah was going to be sent back to usher in the restoration of Israel. And then there were others who were just like, yeah, he's one of the other prophets. He's, he's some prophet. Um, people have always had their own ideas about what the Messiah would be like and about who Jesus is. Uh, but Jesus is not and has never been some concept that's subject to the opinions of people. Uh, he's not who I say he is or who you say he is. He is who he is, no matter what people say about him. Um, but the dullness and the blindness of the general populace here is astonishing to me. Um, he performed that mega list of miracles I read, most of which was right out in the open and taught with remarkable authority. And yet the word on the street about him was, in essence, he's nothing too special. In fact, he's a lot like so-and-so. Like, he's not totally unique. He's really a little bit like that guy or this guy. He's just like one of the guys. Not very impressive. And isn't it scary when you find yourself seemingly dull and blind toward the majesty of Christ? Um, it is me. I, I, and, and frankly, I, I feel that more than I would like to admit. Um, but, and we have to fight that. But thankfully, uh, there's a mechanism. There, there's a plan for that. But we'll get to that later. Um, moving back to the text here. Um, we can see that Jesus' question about what the general populace thinks was a little bit was a little more than like a conversational appetizer, right? The main course is his question to the disciples. In verse 15, it's no longer who do the people, who do they say that I am? It's who do you say that I am? Um, I'm going to make some comments that are not part, I don't believe, of the author's intent. Okay, this, so that well, as soon as I say that. This is we're we're in risky business here, okay? But we live in the 21st century in the West, and so I do want to make a couple of comments, and then I promise uh, we'll, we'll get back into the text here. Um, I want you to notice what Peter does not say. He does not say when asked, "Who do you say that?" He doesn't say, "You know, Jesus, you know, for me, you're God," but I can't really say who you might be for other people. Um, or, or listen, you know, there's a whole lot of people out there that are a whole lot smarter than me. So I feel like I need to do some careful stepping here. I don't want to presume too much. He doesn't say anything like that. Now, in Matthew's writing, for clarity, I do not think that Matthew was writing to combat that kind of thinking. Okay, But I do think that the words here 
do combat that kind of thinking pretty effectively. Peter responds to Jesus by saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, In Greek, that definite article actually occurs four times. So it would read this way. You are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. Um, There's there's no mistaking here. His confession is both universal and absolute. Jesus is who he is, period. And so who is he? Well, Peter calls him the Christ. The word Christ and Messiah are synonyms. Uh, They're the Greek and Hebrew words respectively that mean anointed one. The context or the connotation of the Christ um, is this reference to the Davidic king who would be the, the great deliverer of the people, of, of God's people, of Israel. Um, and so when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, he's essentially saying, you are the Davidic king that we've been waiting for. The promised one in the Old Testament who would fully and finally deliver us and sit on the throne forever. You are that guy, Jesus. He also calls him the son of God. Peter knew Jesus was not a son of God, which is sometimes a designation of scripture given to like humanity. Um, He knew Jesus was not a son of God. He was saying, Jesus, you're the son of God the way that no one else is. You are God. You are God in flesh, the God man. Um. And so let's notice how Jesus does not respond to Peter. Jesus does not say, hey, Peter, you know, I wish you could hear how narrow and judgmental you sound right now. Speaking as though your truth is the truth. You know, lots of people affirm truths that are different from your truth. And it would really make me happy if you acknowledge that right now. Like Jesus does not say that, does he? Uh, No, he answers, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You were blessed. Um. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this isn't Peter's truth. Um, No one revealed this to Peter. No human revealed this to Peter. It was revealed to him by God himself. And so Peter's confession is the acknowledgement of the truth that God the Father has made known about God the Son. And Jesus tells Peter that his confession is actually evidence that Peter has been blessed by God. Uh, So you see the construction there in verse 17. Um, And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for, so how do we know you've been blessed? Because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, my father who is in heaven. Um, This confession that Peter makes is evidence of blessing from God. it's It's a demonstration in Peter's life that he has been blessed by God. He's been granted this understanding. Um, Jesus is the deliverer. He's the king. He is God. And like Peter, we must get that right. And also like Peter, getting that right will be clear evidence that God has blessed us. Why? Because not only is that confession not our idea or opinion, that confession isn't even palatable to us apart from the grace of God. This is not a normal human confession. Human nature is such that we come out of the womb literally hell-bent on sliding God off his throne so that we can sit there in his place. Like that is our default mechanism straight out of the womb. So the confession, Jesus, you are the king, 
you are the living God and I'm neither of those things is clear evidence of God's grace in our lives. So before we go any further, it's right to ask, who do you say Jesus is? Again, your answer doesn't say anything about Jesus. He is who he is. But your answer says everything about you. Your crowd, or the, the crowd at this time, found ways to discount Jesus' undeniable authority, his unmistakable power over, over creation, um, and his flawless fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. You'll remember in Matthew's Gospel, uh, this was written to fulfill what was written, or th- th- this, this happened to fulfill what was written. That sort of language is common in Matthew's Gospel. He fulfilled the Old Testament entirely. So the problem wasn't that there wasn't enough evidence. It was that they didn't want Jesus to be their God and King. So they worked hard to suppress the truth they knew. And so my, my request to you this morning is please don't do that. Please don't do that. Uh, the, the rejection of Christ is literally the essence of folly. It's the essence of it. It is folly, and it's at the very height of insanity. If you don't know him, trust him as your God, your king, and your savior. That's who he is. And please do that, like, now. Um, now, let's pick back up. Verses 18 and 19. Um, Jesus continues, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you're familiar with this text, it's probably for one of two reasons. One is the Pope. The other is the rock. Okay? Um, you may know that this is one of Rome's go-to verses in its justification for the Pope. It's kind of like, hey, see, uh, Jesus built the church on Peter, and then there was going to be this succession of other Peters who we should expect to come after that. You'll find a whole lot of stuff in this passage, but the Pope just frankly is not one of them. Like he's, he is just not there. Um, and so as one commentator puts it, uh, for Rome, this passage is like a seed that only later flowered into the church's interpretation. That's kind of a flowery way to think about it. Um, plus, this interpretation has been officially adopted by the magisterium, kind of the official teaching arm of the Roman Catholic Church. And so apparently the motto is, when you can't read what you want out of the text, just read it into it instead. Um, the Pope is not there. And so uh, that kind of dovetails into this controversy about the word the rock here. Um, Jesus calls Peter, or his confession, I'll say, the rock. Okay, He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And so there is a what I'll call a um, bizarre alarmism about the notion that the rock might be Peter. Um, like, well, if we call Peter the rock, that means we're calling him the Pope. I don't know how we would possibly make that jump. I don't think that's a necessary jump to make. I think it's. I think we can just kind of like calm down on that just a touch. It's not. A, it's not. A, it's not a problem. Um, the text grammatically it allows for two possibilities: that the rock is Peter, or the rock is Peter's confession. I'm opting for C, all the above. Okay, and I'll I'll give you a little bit of why I think that. At the end of the day, I'm not going to die on that hill. Like this is not like I'm championing the 
the both, um, you know, cause here. Um, but I'll give you some thoughts on Peter as the rock and on Peter's confession as the rock. All right. First, Peter as the rock. Um, when did the church as we know it begin? We would all say, I think it was, it was the day of Pentecost, right? Like the church as we know it began on the day of Pentecost. What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples. A huge crowd gathers. Peter preaches and like 3,000 people were saved, thereby forming the first Baptist church of Jerusalem, right? Um, and so there is a practical, non-eternal, non-ongoing sense. There's, a, there's just kind of this practical, temporal sense in which uh, the church started with Peter. Like He preached the first sermon, and I think it's, uh, I don't see any reason why we can't say, hey, in that sense, Peter was kind of this rock upon whom the church was built. Okay. Um, Peter's confession, I think, is most certainly. So I'm, I'm, I'm less, uh, I'm kind of in the both camp, but I'm less uh, like, I think it's less obvious perhaps that Peter is the rock, more obvious than his confession is. Um, the blessing the Father poured out on Peter wasn't just for Peter. Jesus wasn't just blessing Peter. He was building and blessing his church, which would be comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. In the essence of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, would become the foundational confession upon which the entire Christian church would be built. So, in the, so Peter as the rock was a temporal thing. If, if he was the rock, that was temporal, right? He, in a sense, he was the first mouthpiece that God used. The church was built, started on that day. Uh, his confession would be like the eternal. Uh, like it, that, that's never going to end. Um, that will always, has always been and will always be the confession upon which a Christian church is built. Um, it's important to remember that there is an absolutely massive, and I mean massive list of doctrinal beliefs that you can get wrong and still be a Christian. That list is massive. It's huge. And it's important for us to recognize that. But it's also important for us to recognize that there are some things that you cannot get wrong. Um, And Peter's confession hits the high points of the ones the church has understood to be foundational from the very beginning. Jesus is king. Jesus is deliverer. That's the concept of Christ. He's the, he's the, the king and the deliverer. Jesus is the king. He is the deliverer. And he is God. And that is the foundational confession of the church. Um, and there's a promise given here to those who believe. Those who are being built into his church. That uh, not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. Now, I don't understand the imagery here at all, frankly. Um, he says the gates of hell won't prevail. It makes it sound like the gates are like this offensive weapon. The gates are going out and they're attacking and we need to be on the defense somehow against the gates coming for us. I've never seen attacking gates. I don't understand the idea of an attacking gate. But what I do understand is that here he's making it clear that no thing and no one will ever overthrow the church. It will never fail. It is the only organization, the only institution, the only organism that's in this world right now that literally will never fail. 
uh, and we're blessed to be in it. So let's move from Peter's confession to uh, the function of the church. All right. So Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, what are the keys and what is binding and loosing? So Peter, Jesus tells Peter he's going to be given the keys of the kingdom. The trouble with that expression is there is not another text in the whole New Testament that says anything about keys of the kingdom. There is literally no parallel passage for this at all. And so when he talks about the keys, in what sense is he using are these like keys to a door? Are they keys to locks? Are they keys to, what are they keys to? I have no idea. Okay, I really don't. Um, but there's a clear connection that Jesus makes here with the keys and binding and loosing. Now, there is a parallel text for binding and loosing, and it happens two chapters later uh, in Matthew 18 in Jesus' instructions deal on dealing with a brother who sins against you. Okay, So I would argue that whatever the keys are, they go together with binding and loosing, and they are metaphors for church discipline and church membership. They're the ways the church identifies who's in and who's out. All right? Now, you'll notice in Matthew 16 that the keys and the responsibility to bind and loose are given to Peter. But in Matthew 18, if you were to flip there, uh, let's see, um, in verse, well, we can pick up in verse 17. You're probably familiar with this text. This is, if your brother sins against you, you go to him first, tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he won't listen, you go with a witness. If he still won't listen, you tell that you tell that person's sin. You announce it to the entire church, and you're essentially saying, "Hey, whole church, please go and plead with this person to repent." And if they won't, then you you put them out. Uh, but you can see that we're in Matthew 16. The uh, the the binding and loosing is is, is Peter's responsibility. Uh, in Matthew 18. There in verse 17, if he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. And if the church refuses to listen, or if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, and so what's up with that? Who, who's responsible here? Um, the church, the answer is, I think, the church is responsible to identify which matters of doctrine and practice should be forbidden and which should be permitted. The church is responsible to know these things. Uh, that started with Peter at Pentecost, and it extended to the church as Peter's confession spread. Um, as I mentioned above, there's a whole lot of room to believe wrongly and still be considered a Christian. But when someone denies a foundational doctrine, for example, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the implication for us from Matthew 16 is that the church should correct and seek to restore him. If the person repents of that errant view, then the church permits him to continue as a church member. If, the church refu- if, the, if that person refuses to repent, then the church is responsible to revoke that person's church membership and treat him as an unbeliever. Uh, the, 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 where do I get that? The, the idea of loosing, so the, it means to permit, okay? 
Um, the idea of binding means to forbid. So the word can, those words loosen, loosing and binding can be translated permitting and forbidding. Um, and so the idea of discipline there is if, if someone is repentant, if someone is embracing right belief uh, on the essentials, and if someone is uh, living a life of repentance, then we would say they are permitted to be in the, in the church body, to be members of the church. They are considered to be in Christ Christians, right? Um, and if, the, if we are unrepentant of doctrinal, um, violating uh, primary doctrinal beliefs or rejecting primary doctrinal beliefs, or if we're not living lives in keeping with repentance, uh, then we are forbidden uh, to be members of the local church. Um, and so Matthew 16, you see kind of this doctrinal angle. Uh, the, the, it's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. If people get that wrong, there's a binding and loosing that happens. There's a, a church discipline and church membership function there that comes into play. In Matthew 18, so where 16 is doctrinal, 18 is practical. This is when a brother sins against you. So this is a matter of practice. Um, and so you can see that the role of the local church is to keep watch over one another's doctrine and practice. Um, and of course, this keeping watch over one another's doctrine and practice requires us to really know and be known by people here. Um, you know, there, there, there is a, you know, Amanda and I, we've got tons of, um, well, I won't say tons. We have, we have a number of, uh, close friends outside of Sylvania. Frankly, of the number of friends that we have that are close, the overwhelming majority of them are here. But we have some that are outside Sylvania, but those relationships can't ever be prioritized over these. Like we maintain those friendships and we love them and we enjoy them. Uh, but those, those relationships, they, they, there is a depth and there is a responsibility that we just don't have in the same way that we do with the people that are in this room. It's just different. Um, we need to know and be known by these people more than we need to be know and be known by any other people. Um, because those people out there, whoever they are, they can't oversee my faith the same way that you can. Uh, they don't have the ability to uh, tell it to the church if it comes to that. Like they don't have the ability to, uh, to discipline me the way I would need if I, if I become errant on primary doctrine or if my practice, um, if, I, if I show myself to be unrepentant. So a quick encouragement on that, and we'll close things up. If you're an introvert, so this idea of knowing and being known, this may have just freaked you out, right, if you're an introvert, okay? If you're an introvert, be encouraged that you don't need to know and be known by everybody. But be challenged that you do need to know and be known by some people, right? If you're an extrovert, be reminded that you can't really know and be known by every single person. Like, you just can't get there. Uh, you can go mile wide, inch deep, right? You can be like, everybody's, everybody's buddy and everybody really knows you. Be reminded that you can't really know and be known by everybody. So pick some folks to really know and be known by. If you're a doer, Work hard at knowing and being known by the people with whom you are doing whatever it is you're doing. 
If you're a spill-all, take time to know instead of just being known. If you're a listener, make sure you let some people know the real you. And if you're a sinner, which, right? Make sure you let some folks know about the sin you've worked so hard to make sure they don't know about. Make sure you let people know about that one, okay? Um, I, have a, I have a really close friend who has literally made a wreck of his life. He has train wrecked his world. And it's, a, it's, it's this secret sin that he wouldn't talk about. He never told anybody about. He had to get caught. And now there's this like hush-hush thing that's happening. He's drowning. Uh, and he thinks he's doing okay, but he's drowning. And it's sick to watch and it scares me to death. So whatever that sin is that you feel like, oh, I can't tell anybody. I can't let anybody know that one. I'm telling you, that's the one you have got to let somebody know about. That's the point where you need the most encouragement, support, prayer, accountability. Like that's where we need it, right? And that's the role of the church. I need to be really, really known by you because I need you to watch my life. And if there is some wayward thing in me, if there's something about me that's not in submission to Christ, I need you to see it and I need you to tell me about it. Like I need that to be pointed out, right? And you need me to do that for you. Because at the end of the day, what we want to do is treasure Christ. Like we, we want to love him and honor him and submit to him. And, and this is the role of the local church. Like we're essentially coming alongside one another and saying, hey, uh, d- d- don't be going over there. You don't want to go that way. Hey, don't, let's, not, let's not go this way. Let's kind of keep things moving this way toward Christ. And that's what we need to be doing for each other. There's a lot going on in this text. Um, so let me wrap up with just a couple of quick takeaways. Uh, we live in a world that actively suppresses the truth about Christ. Despite that, Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Davidic king and deliverer, the God-man. Nothing matters more than him, so we should keep very close watch over ourselves and over one another. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for your love for us. Um, Lord, we, we, we praise you um, for the reality of who you are. Lord, there is literally no one like you. You are totally unique. Uh, you, you're not one of the boys. You're not like so-and-so. You are God. You are the only Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Deliverer. And Lord, we, we acknowledge you as that, as that, and we ask that you will grow, um, grow our faithfulness to you as a church. Um, I pray that we won't be duped into thinking that there are other things or other people who are more important than you, more worthy of our affection, our attention, our love, our obedience than you are. And Lord, I pray that your church, uh, that this church, uh, here at Sylvania, and uh, that um, Green Acres and South Spring and Grace and Bethel and uh, Redeemer Presbyterian and you name it, I pray that your churches will be marked out by um, submission to your word, uh, by faithfulness, especially in those things that are primary 
getting right that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that your church will be marked out by a practical uh, holiness, faithfulness to you. So Lord, we need you for that, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.